And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. He's here to answer all of your mailbag questions. Thanks for getting in another group of great questions this week. We're all over the place with these ones, though, Ken. We have left-handed infielders talk, wow moments that you've noticed, of course, sticky stuff and much more. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Tim. And how are you? I'm good, Ken, and I know you're out on the West Coast. We're recording this on Sunday earlier in the day. Uh, L.A. Cubs this week. It's been a it's been a fun series, that's for sure. You were there broadcasting Saturday night's game. Cody Bellinger walking that one off with a home run in the ninth. The Dodgers also won late on Friday. No hitter by the Cubs on Thursday. It's been a little bit of everything. It has been, and it's been an entertaining series between two teams that are among the most fascinating in the sport. And I'll touch a little bit on both. Let's start with the Dodgers because they're still sitting a few games out in the NL West and the Giants continue to rampage through the NL West and people keep asking, can the Giants keep this up? Well, that is a question that will be asked and asked in the coming weeks and certainly they've had a lot of things go right. They've had some injuries of late and it's going to be really interesting to see whether they can sustain it with their starting pitching. With Belt going down now, and in addition to Longoria, those guys, their older players, have contributed beyond expectations. Their starting pitching has been good beyond expectations. So that's something for them to look forward to as we get to the deadline. Now, the Dodgers, clearly they have not been whole yet. I had a note ready for the broadcast yesterday. Seager and Bellinger have not been in the lineup at the same time since April 4th. That's because both, of course, have had injuries. Mookie has missed 12 games, hasn't been right physically at all times. So presuming that they get whole, I still expect them to win the division. Now they're going to have to address their rotation a little bit because right now they're actually a little thin. The team that when they signed Trevor Bauer, we all thought, wow, how are they going to fit all these guys in? Well, Dustin May, Tommy John surgery. Jimmy Nelson doesn't look like he'll be stretched out to a starter. David Price is not a starter. I don't know that they're going to stretch him out either. Gonsolin is just now getting stretched back out, so they actually could use one. And their bullpen, it's solid and it should be okay if Gratterall comes back, but maybe they'll look to be opportunistic at the deadline with regard to relievers as well. Keep in mind one thing as we get to the deadline. There is a shortage of starting pitching. Simply not a lot of good options available, in part because of injuries. Guys like Matthew Boyd and Pineda and Bumgarner are all hurt. John Means is another one. They all would be trade candidates. There'll be some good ones out there. Barrios, quite possibly. Maeda, quite possibly as well. There are others. Kyle Gibson will be prominently mentioned. But it's not going to be a robust starting pitching market. 
So the Dodgers, in my view, are going to be just fine. And I expect that offensively, at some point, they're going to turn it around. The Cubs, we've been talking about them really for more than a year now, what they would do at this deadline. And what they have done to this point of the season is wreck their front office's plan and wreck ownership's <laughs> plan to break the team up. And it's going to be interesting to see how this next month and a half goes, or month at this point with the deadline nearing. Basically, the Cubs feel, the players feel this, that they've gotten through or are getting through the toughest part of their schedule right now. The Dodgers are obviously a difficult opponent, and then they go to Milwaukee for three against their big three, Peralta, Woodruff, Burns, then Cincinnati, a team that is not easy to get through because of their great offense. And once they are through that, they get to the break with series against the Phillies and Cardinals. They feel like the worst will be over schedule-wise. They've had two trips to the West Coast, just a trying schedule with the pitching they faced overall. And look at them. They're right there at the top of the NL Central. And it's going to be really difficult for anyone in the front office or ownership to justify breaking up this team. I don't see it happening. Clearly, they need starting pitching as well. Their bullpen's averaging almost four innings per game. They don't have dominant starters in terms of velocity. They've been relatively successful. Certainly Hendricks has. But I see the Cubs looking to add help and not subtracting. And one thing I mentioned yesterday on the pregame show, Bears repeating as well. Craig Kimball. He's one of the many potential free agents, along with Bryant and Baez and Rizzo and Peterson. But Kimball is a little bit different because there is a $16 million option on his contract. And the way he is performing, back at a Hall of Fame level, you don't want to trade Craig Kimball for starters. You don't necessarily want to lose him as a free agent either. You probably want to pay him $16 million. And remember, you'd have to give him a buyout, which would be $1 million or $2 million, depending on how many games he finishes. So it's a $14 million or $15 million decision for a one-year deal for an elite closer. You do that. So the Cubs are an interesting team, as they have been for quite some time now. They'll be interesting right until the deadline. That's why Theo left, right? So he wouldn't have to make these decisions? <laughs> he thought these decisions, and I believe the front office thought and ownership thought that they would be breaking up the team. And right. the team would not compete to this level. They traded Darvish, basically kind of tried to <laughs> put a hole in that balloon before it even got floating, and it didn't work. The team has played really well. They're flawed, but every team in that central is flawed as well, if not more so than the Cubs. So <laughs> they've built a bullpen that has surprised everyone. And now you have to honor what they've done because, as we've talked about before, the chance to win, even win a division, is so rare, and winning in general is so difficult, you don't run from that. Yeah, that that's not good for the team. That's not good for the fan base or anything. All right, the other big thing, obviously, still ongoing in baseball before we open up the mailbag, Ken, is the sticky stuff, and we are one week into the crackdown on the sticky stuff, and it's certainly been an eventful week. We had the Max Scherzer, Joe Girardi face-off in Philadelphia, Sergio, Ro Sergio Romo, dropping his pants that same night. The commissioner spoke to our very own Britt Giroli here at The Athletic. Um, and according to his thoughts to her, he thinks things are going well so far. So what do you think so far one week in? I have a lot of thoughts, <laughs> as you might imagine, on this issue. First of all, and the commissioner made this point, and I do agree with him. To this point, we're almost a week in. We've had two incidents. 
One involves Scherzer, as you said, the other Romo. Two, out of all the times that guys have been checked, two incidents, two guys objecting, no ejections, no suspensions just yet. I would say on balance, the plan is working. That said, a lot of people have raised questions about what they've come up with here, this particular plan, and I have some thoughts and hopefully some answers on that. People are asking, rightly so, why is baseball subjecting its players to searches on the field in the middle of games? And you have to look at the alternatives when you arrive at why they landed at this particular spot. And let's go back even further. A lot of fans don't understand that the players and teams were warned. They were warned in the spring of 2020 before the pandemic hit. Nothing really transpired along these lines last season because it was so difficult to get through the pandemic and keep playing those 60 games. This year, there was a memo sent in late March. Actually, there were two memos in March. And the memo in late March said, we are going to enhance our monitoring and our enforcement of the rule. It's the rule that's been on the books forever. It just hasn't been enforced. And we learned at that time that they were going to check spin rates, that they were going to take balls from every pitcher in every game, that they were going to just look at this a little bit differently. And what happened? The situation got even worse. The cheating was even more pronounced. And at that point, with players speaking out, JT Realmuto spoke out, Josh Donaldson spoke out, others as well, on the record, decrying what was going on. At that point, Major League Baseball, in my opinion, could not let a whole season just slip away. It was getting to the point where it was almost outrageous. So they came up with this plan. Now, why this plan? Why not? And this is a very fair question. Take players off the field or inspect them before they get on the field. Do this out of sight. The fear, from what I understand, is that umpires would essentially be chasing players, that once they're out of sight, they could run into the clubhouse and you wouldn't be able to catch them. And people might say, well, why not use monitors? They have monitors for checking video and other things down there. They're employed by Major League Baseball, and why not use them instead of the umpires? Well, the rules have always called for the umpires to run this process. And in addition, I'm not so sure the players' union would have trusted monitors for employed by Major League Baseball to go along with this and enforce this fairly. Now, the umpires are also employed technically by Major League Baseball, but they have their own union, much as the players do. They're not as direct an entity. So that is why we are where we are. But there's one other element here mentioned on the pregame show yesterday. We shouldn't be here at all. There should be one, a universal substance that pitchers are able to apply to balls legally. Baseball has not come up with one. And some would say baseball should have come up with one before getting to this point. I would agree with that. I would also say that the pitchers should have stopped cheating too. The other thing, and this is the long-term answer, I would think, is attack your ball. They use a tackier ball in Japan. What I mean by tackier is a ball that is easier to grip, a ball that you can use and throw without any substances at all. It comes out of the box sticky and ready to go. Why baseball, Major League Baseball, has not come up with this over the years, knowing this problem was existing and getting worse, is beyond me. And that's the one thing that troubles me about where we are. We should never have gotten here 
in the first place. Especially when there's been so many changes to the ball anyway, right? But not that one. Not the one we could really use right now. Yes. Let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, you can get your voice on the show. You could also just email us if you want to hear your voice at 646-543-7072 for the voicemail. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. There are some sticky stuff related questions as well, Ken, but I wanted to start with a fun question. This one from Connor Hooper over email. He says, as someone who has attended numerous baseball games in person, what is the first memory you have of being wowed by a player you were watching live? Mine was witnessing from a few feet away the defensive wizardry of Adrian Beltre at third base. Love the show. Keep it going. Connor, that's a great question. I think you're trying to age me, but I'll be upfront with my age right away. It's 58, almost 59. My first memory, I would not say, Connor, it's of being wowed, but my first memory of baseball really is the 69 Mets. I was almost seven years old. Ron Swoboda was my favorite player. We went to a couple of games when I was a young, young child. It might have even been before 69. I took a liking to him. And I remember in that World Series, you talk about wow moments. And Swoboda made some incredible catches. Tommy Agee made some incredible catches. And that is what got me hooked. Now, over the years, I will mention two other wow guys. And there have been, of course, countless players like this. Actually, I'll mention three. Griffey was one. Griffey, when he came into the league, cat backwards, the whole athleticism he displayed in center field, the amazing power. He was kind of a bright light of the sport, sort of like Tatis is now. And then, though we did not know totally at the time how he was doing it, and we later found out how he was doing it, Bonds was an absolute wild player just completely riveting every time he stepped to the plate. And yes, I know it was performance-enhancing drugs that contributed to it, or at least that was what we strongly suspect now based on everything that we have heard and understand. But all the walks, the home runs, just the sheer presence, it was wow. And I'll give you one more. And it's a guy playing right now. And actually, I could give you several guys playing right now. But Otani is a complete wow. It's incredible what he's doing. I've said it. Jason Stark has said it. And a lot of people complain when we say this, he's not getting enough attention because what he's doing is historic. It's borderline, I wouldn't say miraculous, but certainly incredible. And I don't know that we've seen his best. And John Smoltz made an amazing point on the broadcast last night. And he said this the night before we were out talking just about different things in baseball. And he said that night, and he repeated it on the broadcast, that if Otani was just a pitcher, dropped hitting, just focused on pitching, learned more about pitching, he'd be at the level of DeGrom. Now, we've seen Mr. DeGrom this year. That's a strong statement. So I would argue, or at least ask the question, if he dropped pitching, what would he be as a hitter? The beauty of this whole situation is right now we're seeing him do both. I don't know how long it lasts, but... It is so breathtaking to watch him pitch and to watch him hit and, by the way, to watch him run the bases as well. Yeah, just incredible. And we'll keep talking about it for sure on this uh, podcast throughout the year with you and then Jason on Tuesdays as well. All right, first voicemail comes from Andrew. Hi, this is Andrew calling from the Raleigh area. 
Uh, I wanted to ask what you think this season means for the Mariners' rebuild. Obviously, they're a bit of fool's gold with their run differential this year, but they're actually winning the ball games. But they're winning because of some pretty unusual suspects. Do you think that means their rebuild's on track, or are they way off base? Andrew, I don't know that they're way off base. I wouldn't say that at all. In fact, there are a lot of things to like about where they are. They're starting pitching prospects. We're seeing Gilbert. He's the first, Logan Gilbert. He was the 14th overall pick in 2018. George Kirby, another first-rounder, is in development. He was the number 20 overall pick in 19. Emerson Hancock, the number 6 pick in 2020. All three of these pitchers, college guys, and they should come relatively quickly, and the Mariners are really excited about all of them. So there's those three. There are others as well. The pitching prospect situation with the Mariners is pretty good. We know about the young outfielders. Now, Lewis is hurt, and there are some in the game who question whether he's going to be quite the player he was last year in a 60-game season, but he is a long-term piece. We've seen Kellenic at the major leagues, hasn't fared well. He's now in the minors. He's going to be back. He's going to be good. Julio Rodriguez, the other great outfield prospect, is going to be good, or at least that's the expectation, and there's no reason to believe otherwise. So starting pitching prospects, outfield prospects, they're in a great place. Now, where they are weak, at least in terms of OPS, is a catcher where they are last, at first base where they are 28th and they've committed to Evan White, and second base where they are 24th. They've got Dylan Moore, Ty France, and some other options. Third base is Kyle Seeger. It depends what they want to do with him. Most likely it's going to be a trade. They have an option on him for next season. They're going to have to fill that eventually. But I would say they're in a good place. And they do have a catching prospect named Cal Raleigh that they like, who ultimately could be the guy. But this is a moment now where they're going to need to spend some money because they can't go all young. Teams can never do that if they want to contend. And it is time, starting in 2022, for the Mariners to take a step forward. So I would expect in free agency this offseason, we may see them do some big things. Their payroll is at a level now where they can. And... It seems to me that it's time to go. And there's a lot to like there. There's a lot of things to be addressed as well. But that's the nature of a rebuilding club. But I will say this, 2022 is a big year for them. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Stock have too high a price? Buy a slice. Trade fractional shares of your favorite U.S. stocks and ETFs in any dollar amount you choose with zero commissions online. Get started at fidelity.com slash stocks by the slice. Fractional share quantities can be entered to three decimal places if the value of the order is at least one cent. Dollar-based trades can be entered to two decimal places. Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from one cent to three cents per $1,000 of principal. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 
I mentioned that there were some sticky stuff questions. Let's get to those now. Mike Patton in Edmonton says, I hope you're not sick about grip enhancer questions. Mike Fires helped out the trash can bangers, and many in baseball seem to label him as a rat. Josh Donaldson helped to expose the sticky goo users, but I haven't heard much blowback in his direction. Any thoughts why Donaldson is being treated differently? It's an entirely different situation, and I'll explain why. Mike Fires was the only one who spoke out publicly on the record about the Astros. And when I say the only one, he was the only member of that team. He was part of that team. And the reason he got blowback is because people felt he had reaped the benefits of being on that team and now was speaking publicly against what they had done. There was no one else who came forward on the record. No one. And believe me, we tried to get any number of people. Danny Farquhar was an opponent. He too spoke on the record, but it's a different situation as an opponent. The problem that some people have with Mike Fires, and I think it's entirely unjustified, and I know it's our story, but I don't care. What he did was good for the sport. And granted, yes, he took the World Series chair, he was part of the team, he reaped the glory, but ultimately, Mike Fires should be looked on much differently than he is looked on by a lot of people. And I know people talk about rats and snitches and all these wonderful words. Well, guess what? The sport is in a better place in part because of Mike Fires. Now, Josh Donaldson called out Garrett Cole and he talked about the sticky stuff situation. But first of all, he wasn't the first one to speak publicly. He spoke as an opponent. As I mentioned, it's different than being part of a team. JT Realmuto had spoken by that point. Chris Bryan has since spoken. Other players we had quoted in our article, Brick Garoli and I, Adam Duval. We quoted Frank Menachino, the White Sox hitting coach. These were people on the record. So it wasn't like Donaldson was the only one talking about this. And it wasn't a secret. The Astros thing was a secret. No one knew. This was kind of an open secret. It wasn't discussed as much until this year, but it's not an issue that it's been under the table for many years that no one's talked about. Sticky substances, Eno Saris wrote about it in November. He wrote about it before that. Others did the same. I know Buster Only of ESPN was a strong advocate of baseball doing something about this years ago. So that, as opposed to the Astros situation, was not something that came as a surprise to people. That was something that was building. And again, a number of hitters spoke on the record, which means they were quoted by name. And that's the difference. Yeah, very different situation. Uh, next one's from Jason Reinhardt. He says, at the time of this email, it's only Wednesday, two days in with the new substance rule, and there is so much discourse between players and managers over the new substance rule. He brings up Girardi and Scherzer that we mentioned at the top. Is MLB trying to break the union prior to the CBA? Could a lockout or strike be worse than what we saw in 94? I could see all of 2022 being lost. Jason, that is a question people have raised, and it's fair because of the tension between the sides and every time MLB does something that would be perceived to be anti-player, you can certainly make that case. But at the same time, with this particular issue, it's anti-player on one hand, anti-pitcher perhaps, but pro-player, pro-hitter on the other hand. And it also, MLB would argue, and I would agree, is pro-MLB, pro-baseball, the sport itself going forward because it's trying to restore the pitcher-hitter dynamic to a more level playing field. So that's one thing. Now, yes, it's always fair to question motives in this relationship, and I think that is a healthy thing to do. But think about it. 
If MLB is trying to divide pitchers and hitters, let's just assume for the sake of the discussion that that's the plan. Let's do this. It's a CBA year. We'll get them all messed up. Well, pitchers and hitters, I think, are going to be still unified on service time manipulation, on earlier free agency, on all of the different economic issues that they face as members of the Players Association. I don't expect that anything that goes on, and the All-Star Game was another divisive issue among players. Another thing where you could say, ah, look at MLB. They've got some players they know want this. They've got some players know don't want to move the game. They're trying to divide the union. Well, if those issues, the All-Star Game, the sticky stuff, divide the union to the point where they can't function as a bargaining entity in a unified manner, then the union is not as strong as it perceives itself to be. To me, it's separate things. And the economic issues that the sport faces and even the playing issues that the sport faces that will be discussed as part of collective bargaining negotiations, they are separate. Now, as for the future of the sport beyond December 1st, which is when this current CBA expires, I would expect at that point a lockout will be announced. I don't expect a deal before December 1st. It would be surprising to me based on the fact that when you talk to the two sides, they seem to be talking different languages, and that's been going on for quite some time now. But as for losing games in 2022, that's a whole other story. So while the CBA might expire December 1st and a lockout might ensue, the actual deadline is really what? About February 10th, 15th, right before spring training would start? Because that's when you got to get going and when you got to get going for the season. So I expect a lockout, but I'm not so sure I expect the players to stay strong and the owners to stay strong enough for them combined to do the unthinkable, which would be to have games canceled because of a work stoppage. Coming off the pandemic with all the economic hardship that both sides claim, the owners in particular, it wouldn't be too smart to tick off your fan base with another lockout. In fact, a good portion of the fan base is already ticked off by everything else that's going on with the sport as it's active. So there is going to be a ton of pressure to get a deal. And it's going to be internal pressure too. Pressure from owners on the commissioner, pressure from certain players on the union leadership. So no, I do not necessarily expect games to be canceled, but I do expect friction. I expect a lockout and then I expect ultimately a deal to be done. This is the longest coming lockout I can ever remember, right? We've been talking about this for basically two <laughs> years, Ken, that, oh, it's coming. It's going to be a lockout after the 2021 season. And, and now we're finally getting close to it. But yeah, let's hope there is baseball in the spring of 2022. All right, back to the voicemail. Hi, Ken. This is Frank. One of the neat parts about playing softball is seeing left-handed players able to play positions like third base and second base and catcher and shortstop. I'm just wondering if you ever see a day in Major League Baseball where there will be left-handed players playing positions other than pitcher, first base, or outfield. It just seems like there are plenty of athletes who have the ability and have the athleticism to make it work. Frank, we're watching Otani do things we never thought a player could do in this generation. So I'm not going to rule out anything. But when you're talking about a left-handed hitting catcher, I'm sorry, left-handed throwing catcher or second baseman, shortstop or third baseman. 
you're talking about losing split seconds in a sport where you cannot afford to lose split seconds. And what do I mean by that? Well, second baseman, when you're turning the pivot, if you're left-handed, it's a different situation with a throw coming from the shortstop. With the shortstop, it's an extra split second in getting yourself positioned to throw. With a third baseman, charging a bunt. There are all these different things that come into play, catching as well. So I don't expect this to ever happen. You never know, I guess. But I just don't see in the future those kinds of players developing. Kids at a very young age are shuttled to those different positions. Now, maybe they shouldn't be, and maybe we should be freer in our thinking, but teams and even little league teams are looking for the best possible advantage, and I don't see it being a left-handed throwing player at any of those positions. Yeah, in a world of advanced analytics, that's not happening, because if it didn't happen before (laughs) all the numbers and stat cast, it's certainly... (laughs) Not going to happen now. All right, back to email. This one's from Jamie Haig-Williams. Basically, I was wondering whether there's a MLB comparison to people holding out in the offseason for a new contract in the NFL. Furthermore, given trades in the NFL occur where a player is traded for and immediately signed a new bumper deal, does that affect the trade value of players like Tel Marte, who have such team-friendly deals in the future, if they have the ability to hold out for a better deal? Jamie, we don't often see that in baseball. In fact, I cannot remember in my 30-plus years of covering that ever happening. I do remember one holdout. Actually, it was sort of before my time. I was four years old. The Drysdale Koufax, the famous holdout of 1966, 32 days in spring training. They were asking for a combined $1 million over three years. Drysdale and Koufax wanted a combined $1 million over three years. They didn't get it. Drysdale got 105,000. Koufax got 130,000. These were two of the premier pitchers in the sport. But that holdout was pretty much the last one that I can recall being a really big one. Now, let's look at a Cattell Marte as an example because that's the player you named. He signed a contract. Now, I guess if he didn't want that contract honored anymore, he could hold out and ask for a better deal, but he basically, I would imagine, be suspended at that point, and you'd have to go on the restricted list. You sign a contract, you got to fulfill that contract, not just in baseball, in most walks of life. So I'm not that familiar with how the NFL works. I apologize for that. Maybe I'm being naive here and not necessarily clued in on what goes on, but I don't see that happening in baseball. It hasn't happened in baseball for quite a long time. I think the big difference is contracts in baseball are guaranteed. Contracts in the NFL, you're basically guaranteed that first year. So players hold out because they want the extra guarantee in NFL because it's such a violent sport as well. So I think that's the big difference is the thing MLB has over for everything else is those magically guaranteed contracts. There you go. That's a better answer. And Tim's right. Now, again, he's got an understanding of the NFL. I have no understanding of really anything but baseball. And some would suggest my understanding of baseball is not all that great either. I hear from you. But no, seriously, that seems to be the case. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. 
Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, back to voicemail. Uh, this one from Connecticut. Hi, my name is Daryl. I'm calling you from Hartford, Connecticut. And I have a request, almost a plea. All this um, analytics that we hear about that I grew up uh, being introduced to by Bill James, we have a lot of new stats. Yet the only thing that ever seems to show up on MLB or even regional broadcast is OPS. They show the uh, pitchers' stats when they come in for a game, and I'm sitting there quickly trying to do uh, a calculation for whip. Why can't we have some more advanced statistics provided to us as we're watching a game? And an added benefit would be to show, here's the stats for this particular person, but what's an average stat? So that we have an immediate yard stick to kind of measure some of this stuff because oftentimes announcers just don't even address it. Actually, this is a really good question and it's one that we talk about at MLB Network and we talk about at Fox quite a bit. And I know the regional networks handle it in their own way as well. I know, speaking for Fox first, let's go there first. That's a national network and the people who watch games on Fox aren't all attuned to analytics. That's our feeling. And I imagine there's some research that would support that. We have, yes, the avid fans, but we also have casual fans, particularly in the postseason. So it's really difficult to find the right balance. And we use OPS. We don't use OPS plus. We don't use weighted runs created plus. We don't use some of the advanced pitching statistics for the most part. Maybe once in a while, I'll throw one in but we're trying to cater to the largest possible audience. And it's fair for any fan to say, well, you guys can go a little bit further, or it's fair for some fans to say, I don't even want OPS, just give me my batting average. People have different interests and different tastes. And when you're doing a game for a national audience, it's a tricky thing. That's all I can say about it, because I know people have opinions on it, and people say, you guys should do this, this, and this, and we hear it all the time. And we're always trying to strike that balance. That's one. MLB Network. If you watch the network, different shows even treat it differently. Brian Kenny's show deals with all of the advanced analytics for the most part. He hits everything. And those are explained by Brian very well. And even in the game broadcast, the MLB showcase games that you'll see, those are the ones that are produced by MLB Network. I would say there is a greater use of the advanced stuff than there is on the Fox games because an MLB network audience is more of a hardcore baseball audience than a Fox audience might be. Now, what's interesting to me is if you watch a regional game, say the Texas Rangers, the Houston Astros, their network, if you're watching on the MLB app, for instance, they will be more aggressive in their use of advanced statistics than we will be at Fox. And They'll be more at the level of MLB Network. They clearly feel that this is something that 
their audience can handle and they explain it and they go about it in that way. I don't know that they all do it in the same consistent manner, but it's really a question of what you think your audience wants and what you think you can explain. Now, there are some things that are so difficult to explain that you just can't go there. And I'll give you an example. Yesterday on the pregame show on Fox, we were going to talk about the sticky stuff situation. And I wanted to give a statistic that would show how things are changing since the coming of the advancement was sort of announced on June 3rd. Since those owners' meetings, when it came out of the owners' meetings, that something was going to be done. And we all know that was a line of demarcation when things changed. The stat that really gives you the best indication of how things are changing is spin to velocity. The ratio of spin to velocity. Because it normalizes for velocity and it just gives you the best overall look. If I was to go into that stat, I'd have to explain it for 10 to 15 seconds. And I don't know that a lot of people would understand it still. It's a hard thing to explain. Now, when I wrote about this last week, I wrote about that. I can explain it. My readers are generally pretty avid baseball fans. So that's kind of an example of how it's different for different networks and different statistics and how it's not so easy as just, hey, just do more. Well, you want to do the best you can for everyone. Great answer. And you're the perfect person to answer that question, Ken. So thank you for that question on this show. It was perfect. One more voicemail here. Hi, this is Jason from Belton, Texas. I have a question that involves my favorite player in the game today, Jose Altuve. On June 11th, in a game against the Minnesota Twins, Altuve hit what was first ruled to be a foul ball down a left field line. Upon review, it was determined that the ball had hit the foul pole, making it a home run. The umpires told Altuve, however, that he didn't have to run the bases, and he was awarded a home run. But back on June 8th, just three days earlier in Pittsburgh, Key Brian Hayes clearly hit a home run in the first inning against the Dodgers, but missed touching first base and was called out. Now, I love Altuve, and home run was definitely the right call, but Altuve is awarded a home run without touching any bases. Hayes is called out for only touching three out of four bases. What am I missing? How do the rules allow for this? Jason, you make an interesting point because certainly the way you present that, it's quite odd. But I believe the answer is simply that because it was a review, it would have been silly with Altuve's, I think he was standing in the on-deck circle as the review was done to make him run around the bases again. At that point, it's a home run, and the umpires, if you go back and watch the replay, they tell him, you don't have to run, you don't have to run. So that's different than a guy circling the bases on a home run and missing a base, which you can't do. So that, to me, seems to be where this kind of changed. He simply, after the review, Altuve, did not have to circle the bases. That's a waste of time. It's not necessary at that point. And I, I think that's how the umpires saw it. Good question, though, for sure. Uh, all right, one more question, Ken. This one's from Jordan Eisen. He says, will Marcelo Zuna play again this year, or will the suspension take the rest of the season away from him after he heals from his broken fingers? Jordan, I know a lot of Braves fans would like that question answered, and a lot of people in baseball are wondering what's going to happen to Azuna as well. And let's go back to his original injuries the two broken fingers that he suffered on, I believe it was May 26th. At least that's when he went on the injured list. 
At that time, they said he was going to be out about six weeks, which would put him back around the All-Star break, maybe into August, if you factor in a rehabilitation assignment. And that was the expectation. Then, of course, the domestic violence allegations break and an investigation by Major League Baseball begins. He will come off or be eligible to come off the injured list at some point. If he does come off the injured list at that point, let's say it's August 1st, I would expect at that point, baseball would either put him on administrative leave, which is what they've done with some players when trying to decide what to do or suspend him. Baseball would have had at that point six weeks or so to determine whether Ozuna needs to be suspended. Now, often the league prefers the legal situation to play out before making a decision. The legal situation probably will not play out by then. But according to the joint domestic violence policy that the league and Players Association came up with, a formal charge is not needed for a suspension, much less a conviction. So I would expect he is not going to play again anytime soon, maybe not even this season. I don't know that for a fact. That's just my guess based on the seriousness of these allegations and where the calendar stands and just how this is all, in my view, going to proceed. Great questions again this week. Thanks for getting them in. If you want to be part of the show next week, you can do that. Call the voicemail 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Next weekend, 4th of July weekend. Ken, where are you headed? Washington, D.C., Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Washington Nationals. Nationals are a really interesting team right now. They just lost Fetty to the IL, which is not good. He's been their best pitcher. But they've played really well of late, and this is a team that we've seen before. They just don't go away easily. You want to keep coming back to the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. Coming up on Starkville Tuesday, Andrew Miller joining the show. He has some thoughts on the sticky stuff as an active pitcher in the big leagues right now. And then coming up on Thursday, Grant Brisby and Hunter Pence, as always. And on Friday, it's Derek Van Riper and Keith Law. They had a great show talking about Wander Franco last week. That will keep going out throughout the season. If you want to read all the great stuff going on at The Athletic right now, you can join. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. $3.99 a month right now for all the great writing of Ken and all those other writers I just mentioned, all the other sports. Check it all out. For Ken Rosenthal, I'm Tim McMaster. Have a great week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 